I'd say a, a large part of my life is and, and where I am today is, is actually a reaction to um, either being bored of a specific process or not wanting to do something uh, when, when it's my job at hand. So, so I've always enjoyed automating tasks. I've always enjoyed uh, you know, finding a, a faster, better way of doing things. And that was effectively what it was. Whether, whether you know, um, it would have led me into something else, probably. It's just I made the, the right call at the right time. Well, hello, hello. It's DeAndre here, and this is The Pioneers Show. The show where we talk with innovators, makers, entrepreneurs, basically people who are trailing their own trails and creating their own lives so that we all can learn how to work on our own lives. This is episode 10, and I'm your host, Andre de Albuquerque. You can find me at It's DeAndre on Twitter and on Instagram, as well as the show at Pioneers Show on Instagram as well. In this week's episode, we have Jag Singh, the managing director of the Metro Accelerator for retail. He has been investing in startups for a couple of years now, and on top of that, has a great experience dealing with the politics sector, either by being an advisor for the Democratic National Committee in the United States, to co-founding MessagePays, one of the world's biggest online agencies directed at politics. In this episode, we go over Jack's story on starting to work with candidates in the US, all the way to becoming a mentor and investor in different startups. From talking about social media's impact in Cambridge Analytica, to the will of paying it forward by mentoring other startups. Jack is a fantastic person and has a great amount of knowledge to share. Without anything else to add and wanting to jump into this conversation as soon as possible, let's welcome to the Pioneers Show, Jack Singh. Well, hello, Jack. Welcome to the Pioneers Show. Hello. Thank you for having me. So for people at home who don't know who you are, care to give us a presentation about you? Sure. So my name is Jag Singh. I'm the managing director of the Metro Accelerator for Retail, powered by Techstars. Um, I've been an entrepreneur and an investor. And for the last 12 years, I actually had a dual career. I was also a political strategist working for politicians, governments, and large corporates around the world. Okay. Then let's start with that second second career that you talk about, the political advisory position. Sure. Uh, first of all, where are you from? I was born in Asia and then I grew up in the U.S. Um, and I went to high school and, and university in the U.S., worked there for a little bit, and then moved to England uh, uh, in my late teens, just after I finished university. Cool, cool. Okay. So you, when did you start about, when did you start getting interested in politics? I assume that one does not jump into advisory in terms of politics without getting interested, right? It was completely by accident. I uh, discovered that there was a niche in the political advisory and, well, politics in general, the business of politics, uh, because there was a lack of technology being used and a lack of know-how of how to use technology in political campaigning and in politics from the day-to-day uh, of running political campaigns, but also from the government, from the governance side. How do you use technology to help people, which is ultimately what politicians always aim to do. So were you always interested in the tech part? No. So I, I, I've always had a fascination for math. I was, um, uh, you know, my background was in applied math. Um, and I, again, technology was just one of the ways that I could differentiate myself. myself. Um, and so I, I kind of learned how to pick, pick about, pick apart different types of technologies and and taught myself, you know, coding and, and learned how to uh, manipulate different types of technology to, well, suit whatever whatever needs and purposes. Hmm. Okay, you already tackled one of the questions that I had. It was, how did you manage to go from political to tech? But at the same time, apparently, you were already doing that as a political advisor. Absolutely. That, that was actually one of the ways that I differentiated myself as a political advisor. Um, 
uh, so, you know, I, I, my, my political career kind of began in political marketing, but as we know, the, the worlds of marketing and tech are interconnected these days. Mm -hmm. And well, they have been, uh, ever since the, well, since the eighties, I'd say. And this sort of gave me an opportunity to set myself apart and, and be one of those people who could open doors and, and show, uh, or, well, just effectively be a disruptor. And, and that's what I love doing, disrupting things. Cool. Very interesting. So you went as a political advisor. How long did you stay doing this? Are you still actively doing this as a part-time? Is there anything? Uh, no, I'm, I'm no longer officially advising anyone. I, I still have a whole lot of friends around the world who are politicians and uh, I give them counsel every now and then. But for I, I tried to get out of politics about two years ago, right after the European referendum uh, in, in Britain. And, uh, and it took me about you know, eight to nine months to properly get out of it. Uh, and, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm a happier person for not being officially involved in, uh, political campaigns and, and governance around the world. Okay. Um, in your Twitter profile, you assume that you are a capitalist with a heart and a wannabe kingmaker. Care sure. to explain these two spe specific things just to give a little bit more insight about you? Well, I just I, a capitalist with a heart is is it's uh, pretty much explanatory. It's self-explanatory as as is wannabe kingmaker. Uh, it's kind of a joke, but uh, you know, I I'm I'm a capitalist uh, to my core, but I do believe that. Uh, you know, I'm not an extreme capitalist, so I, I do believe that there there is some function for, uh, uh, you know, social good. There there is some function for for people doing some good in this world beyond uh, looking at it through the lens of a pure capitalist. And in terms of the wannabe kingmaker, more of a joke kind of thing. Or? Yeah, well, it's a joke. You know, who who doesn't want to be a kingmaker? <laughs> uh, I I never want to be the king. I I want to be the person who crowns the king. Makes sense. Okay, now going in a little bit more in depth about the marketing area, the, the tech area, and the politics. Were you ever, what kind of thing were you doing in terms of marketing? Are we saying, I assume, when did you start working in politics? 12 Two, years ago? 2000, and uh, officially I started working in 2003. Okay, I was nine years old. Um, by then, the marketing as we know it didn't exist. What kind of marketing? Was it more in the TV ads? What, campaigns, political, uh, offline things, what, what kind of thing were you doing? So marketing at that point was uh, a blend of TV ads and direct marketing. TV ads were still, uh, well, they still are uh, a large component of political marketing, but there was a uh, large segment of, of any political campaign budget devoted to direct marketing, direct mail. And this has been going on since the 1980s, uh, 1970s, actually it was pioneered by the Republican Party. Uh, where they figured out how to use disparate data sets to connect dots and be able to profile people better using, uh, well, using whatever channel possible, um, with, you know, whether it's radio or TV ads or whether it's, it's direct mail kind of targeted leaflets uh, or whether it's just people knocking on doors. Yeah, but I assume that being in that area, you kind of saw the shift of the marketing as we know it today to from the one that you just described, right? Uh, it was, it, it actually didn't, the shift I don't think happened until 2005 or six. Um, so in 2003, there was a candidate for uh, president, a guy named Howard Dean was a, was a candidate on the Democratic side. Um, I was actually working for one of his opponents, Wesley Clark, 
who was a general and and had served as Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. Um, and Howard Dean began to use the uh, and and a few of his advisors, Thomas Gensimer, uh, Zach Exley, began to understand ways of of harnessing the potential of the internet in the context of bringing people together and and uh, helping grow a movement. So effectively, it was how can we how can we empower people that are split apart by you know, thousands of miles of, of geography, and and how do we bring them all together either by way of you know pooling their contributions. So what if you could get a thousand people giving fifty dollars each rather than having to go to one person and ask for fifty thousand dollars as a campaign contribution? Mm-hmm. What if you could get uh, you know twenty thousand people to send an email to their friends rather than host a, a, an event with where you're just going to get 200 people um, in one specific location? What if you could get 20,000 people all across a, a whole city or state or even a country and channel all those efforts to you know, furthering whatever your goals are? With, with any marketing exercise, whether it's a political one or, or, um, or otherwise, you know, whether you're, the way I like to think of it is whether I'm selling a can of baked beans on a store shelf or whether I'm selling a political candidate, or an idea, the exact same principles apply. Um, it's all about relevance. It's all about making your candidate uh, actually available, and, and you know, uh, effectively, there, there's a there's a standard set of rules that, and and ideas that you follow, or principles in, in marketing that you follow uh, to get the job done. And so, effectively, what if you could you know use all these organizing channels, all these fundraising channels to further your goal, which is to get your candidate elected, and. Howard Dean's campaign ultimately wasn't successful, but it sparked a uh, real debate within politics in terms of how do we use all the stuff that we've been doing offline, um, you know, for 20, 30 years, how do we translate that into the, onto the internet? And how do we, how do we really build that? You got to remember in 2004, YouTube didn't exist. Firefox had just come out. This was, you know, very, very early days. Facebook was on the early days as well. Facebook, Facebook had, doesn't, didn't exist at that point. Um, uh, in 2003, Facebook did not exist. Um, so, you know, you, you fast forward a little bit more into 2005 and six, and suddenly we realized, you know, there was a little bit more awareness of, of cookies. People weren't just doing blind ad buys anymore online. They were actually looking at targeting mechanisms. And so it was, it was just a perfect timing. Um, and I helped kind of spearhead some of those efforts, um, including, you know, building the first algorithm that could, figure out a person's political preferences based on their web browsing behavior. Um, and, you know, one thing led to another, and, and we found that there were a lot of people within um, policymaking circles, but also politics, who saw the potential for how this technology could be applied. Just taking a quick step back. So you seem to have what Liam Neeson says, a very particular set of skills. So you come from a tech, from a math background. You taught yourself to code. You have a very tech background as well at the same time. But you went in a very very marketing side, at one point at least. So how was the shift between those areas so that people, for example, who think they're closed off to a specific industry or even set of knowledge, how did you shift into marketing? Was it a very smooth transition, or is it like okay, I know this and this is something that I know now? Did you read any books, specific books, anything that made you transition, or is it just common sense? Uh, I'm sure I read a whole bunch of books at that point, but uh, if you ask me to name them right now, I, I, nothing would come to mind. I think most of my 
most of my education actually came from speaking to people and, and understanding what the real problems were. And it was about building things step by step. So, for example, my first job in politics um, was completely by accident. I showed up at a campaign office um, uh, to volunteer. And because I'm Indian, they assumed I was actually there to help fix their computers. They, th- they assumed I was IT support, um, <laughs> which, you know, hey, uh, f- fair play to them. But it, it got me to where I am today, so I can't really be annoyed. Um, and so, you know, they gave me a computer to fix and I was like, okay, right now I need to go fix this computer. So I, I picked, I tore the computer apart, learned how to fix it, uh, came back. And then they were like, hey, we've got a bunch of other problems, but why don't you just hang around? And, and you know, a, a large part of my life is, um, is, is, is uh, I'd say a, a large part of my life is, and, and where I am today is, is actually a reaction to um, either being bored of a specific process or not wanting to do something uh, when, when it's my job at hand. So, so I've always enjoyed automating tasks. I've always enjoyed uh, you know, finding a, a faster, better way of doing things. And that was effectively what it was. Whether, whether you know, um, it would have led me into something else, probably. It's just I made the, the right call at the right time, and, and that's where I ended up. So, for example, going back to the political side, um, you know, I, I realized there were there were there was there were reams of data that was being collected uh, that didn't have any real data storage or data source to go into or or a data bank effectively. Um, so, for example, you have volunteers in the U.S. And, and actually, this happens all over the world, where volunteers from a political party or working for a political candidate will go and knock on you know people's doors, voters' doors, and and ask them how they're going to vote and ask them about their opinions. Now, some of that information is captured, and at that point was captured on, on pencil and paper. Mm-hmm. F- fun fact, it still is around the world, even in, in the UK, for example. Most information, um, you know, th- it's not like there's an app for that, that, that information is entered into a tablet. Um, it's incredibly low-tech, and, and uh, it's really frustrating to deal with. But all that information was being collected. This is, you know, this is 2000 and 2003. All that information was being collected, and not really being fed back into a big data store, which meant no one could manipulate that data. No one could really kind of think about visualizations or no one could really think about how to, how to engage with that data to do more with it. So when you talk about data, um, I, I would like to go on the algorithm, but now that you mentioned data, right now I think we live in a little bit of tor- turmoil in terms of data usage, GDPR in Europe, but at the same time, the data leaks of Facebook and other things that have been happening, Typeform just had a big data leak. How was this an issue back in when you first wrote your algorithm? Was this an issue that how are we going to manage the amount of data? Is there a security part, or is it like let's try and see what happens later? Oh, I mean, obviously you're dealing with political data, which is extraordinarily sensitive. You, you know, the biggest concern you have isn't so much um, what happens if a Chinese hacker figures out uh, or a Russian hacker figures out, you know, uh, how my grandmother's going to vote. Actually, what's more important is protecting the sanctity of, of you know, the, the Australian ballot system we have, which is everyone has a secret ballot, but also protecting the sanctity of data so that it, uh, and the security of data so that it doesn't fall into our opponent's hands. So data security has always been um, a very, very, very crucial thing in, in any political campaign. It's uh, if, if I have a list of people who are going to vote for me and the last thing I want to do is give that information up to anyone else uh, so that they can then you know, apply pressure and, and apply pressure to get them to vote a different way. 
But the, the, the algorithm that you wrote, was it just to get an idea of the amount of people who are going to vote for you or vote for the candidate that you were working with? What, what, what did the algorithm do in terms of... So the algorithm specifically looked at uh, analyzing a user's behavior across thousands of different websites mm -hmm. and then being able to determine whether or not they were, gonna, they were likely to vote for a specific cause. So, so you wrote that. Were, were you alone the one doing that, the the writing of the algorithm? Uh, I I started writing that algorithm alone, and then uh, I worked with a, a team. Um, but ultimately, I, I led the effort. And the idea was ultimately just to give you a general idea of how many people were voting in a specific geography, just to give an idea of nope, the efforts. No, the the idea was what if we could figure out that user X is going to vote for candidate Y, and well, that's really crucial information. If, if you can know, it's not about the numbers of people, it's actually looking at it, and it's not about, it's not about a process that's you know, uh, done over a thousand people, it's actually just getting that process right for one person and then replicating that same process at, into as much scale as you can. But according to what the data gave you, you then proceeded with a specific mar uh, marketing message to that person, is that it? Potentially, yes. Once again, we, we get on to the, the, the little bit of a political turmoil recently with the Facebook election thing. Yep. What's your opinion on that? Do you think that... Again, it's, it's not anything new. Uh, you know, I, I could go out right now and buy information, offline information, without even touching Facebook, uh, which is actually what Facebook does. They, they themselves buy data from other stores and other, other repositories um, and combine that with their own existing data. So, for example, if you wanted a list of... Uh, you know, people in this country who subscribe to a specific magazine, that data could, you could quite easily find that information uh, and, and purchase that information from credit reference agencies, credit score, scoring agencies. Um, there's, there's tons of data that, that can be purchased very easily. Everything from credit card uh, uh, sort of records to, well, just, just the mere fact that, you know, it's, it's really easy to find out how much a, a person earns, uh, what their demographics are, you know, what kind of house they live, what kind of car they drive, uh, what kind of magazines they subscribe to. Well, so, sorry to interrupt you, but when you say easy to find, yep. is it just, can we do this in Germany and literally go to a bank and ask for the, those statements? Do you have to buy with a very high price? What? Oh, you, so you, you never buy this from, a, from the bank directly. You would buy this information from a aggregator of, you know, personal data. So there's credit reference agencies around the world, um, uh, that exist for the purpose of, of providing these types of data sets at, at, in large quantities. Mm. And so effectively, what we were doing was trying to figure out a way to not completely de-anonymize, but to a certain extent, figure out if we could break down certain chunks and if we could start building patterns of people, um, we'd, very be, we'd, we'd be very easily able to manipulate that data and, and figure out the patterns that we were really looking for. So going again to the Facebook thing of the campaigns, do you have any, once again, uh, asking for your opinion, yeah. do you think that the, the amount of data that might have been maneuvered, manipulated, whatever it is, what's your opinion since you worked in that area? Yeah, you, so so uh, I'll, be, I'll be frank. Um, Cambridge Analytica were snake oil salesmen, right? They, they didn't really know what they were selling. And in fact, they were selling um, uh, garbage to people who didn't really know what they were buying. Um, I actually know people, yeah, there's some, there's some good people who used to work at Cambridge Analytica, uh, including a few close friends. And 
when when all these allegations came out, uh, you know, a few months ago, they were surprised, and and you know, I got a few texts saying, "I wish we actually had this data because we we could have used that information uh, for our campaign for our political clients." Um, most of what Cambridge Analytica promised the world was complete, you know, uh, a complete fabrication, um, and and just the CEOs and, and their sales teams mouthing off, trying to get uh, large potential political campaigns in the door. So, uh, you know, if if you ask me. Could you manipulate a whole uh, election on the basis of knowing that you know I like Taylor Swift and my personality type is is uh, you know I'm, I'm a I'm a mixed introvert uh, 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 I'm a mixed uh, extrovert introvert I'm a you know uh, I'm an ENTJ or whatever you, whatever uh, the Briggs Meyer tests say Can you immediately deduce my political leanings from that? I don't think so. Um, I think there's the a person's political, uh, the the makeup of a person's political ideology and and how they're going to vote is much more complex than just uh, their psychology and you know what kind of car they drive and and uh, what kind of information they're consuming. I think there, there's a whole bunch of different factors in there, and most you know most most politicians, um, most of us who've been veterans of political campaigns know that. Actually, you know everything from what you eat the morning you vote to whether or not you had a good night's sleep affects how you're going to vote. So, really, yeah, just just maybe because of a change of heart or well, there, when you get when you're in that little ballot box and and you've got the whole world on your shoulders and and you know, you're able to make that determination on whether you're going to vote for person A or person B. Um, there's a lot of things that go in a person's mind. There, there's 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 a, there, there is a segment of the population that goes into the ballot box knowing full well who they're going to vote for, but actually most elections are won based on on the swing between people who had no idea who they were going to vote for, genuinely had no idea who they're going to vote for when they entered into the ballot box. Interesting. Uh, personally speaking, I always drop into a specific bar that I never know who I'm going to vote for. I've always voted in Portugal every time that I've had a chance to vote. I've always voted, but because I don't have enough information, I always vote in blank or and I nullify the vote. Right. I'm doing my own civic duty, but since I do not know enough, I don't want to just vote without what other people are voting. This yeah. is my own personal belief. Yeah. I think that's the best part. If I don't know, at least I'm voting and I'm not voting blindly. Um, but so you think that, the, the, correct me if I'm wrong, but apparently m- most news publications that came out saying the Cambridge Analytica, the ABC, were they completely blown out of proportion? Oh, totally. Yeah. Hmm. So the, the Facebook Congress hearing, the European thing was that more of a show than anything else no that wasn't a show because that was you know legitimately that was data uh that was that was that should not have gone into cambridge analytica's hands and then cambridge analytica trying to manipulate that but uh most of those hearings never really ended up in in anything what what it did show was there was lax security on the part of of Facebook. facebook and some of the other players it wasn't just facebook i mean there were lots of other uh, actors and what it did show was that there was indeed some form of um, some attempts to manipulate the public and manipulate the electorate into doing things. But uh, whether it did or didn't have a real effect, I, I'm erring on the side of it didn't have as big an effect as, as we'd like to think. Okay, so now going off a little bit from the political advisory career, you go on from political advisor. You said you were an entrepreneur. 
care to give us some more story or history on your entrepreneurial journey until where you are now? Sure. So the first startup was actually uh, wrapped around the algorithm that I, I just talked about. Um, and we sold that to a ad tech firm, which was then ultimately sold to uh, uh, a, a larger ad tech firm, which then was actually then uh, acquired by Microsoft and then spun out of Microsoft and then acquired by Facebook. Um, so that, that algorithm sits somewhere on, in some in a whole bunch of different data server data centers and, and servers um, in Menlo Park. So that was your first exit. So that was the first exit. Uh, there was a, another smaller exit where I built a um, effectively a Reddit clone um, uh, around focused on one very small part of uh, the media environment, and uh, that was sold to a um, UK publishing. Uh, uh, house in 2008, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, a few years before that, I'd, I'd set up a uh, an, an ad agency, a, a, uh, a data-driven marketing and political ad agency, which is still going today. Uh, it's it's it Message Space. It's one of the biggest ones okay. um, uh, in the world today. And uh, and along the way, there were there were a few other things that I'd kind of been involved in. Um, but the the most recent one, and, and which is actually the the biggest, I, I like to call it a spectacular failure, not because it was a real failure, but actually because it it, it taught me a lot of lessons. Uh, it was actually a competitor to Cambridge Analytica, uh, and this was in twenty twelve. Um, it was called West Digital, um, and uh, yeah, set it up with with four friends, uh, or three friends. Uh, the four of us were were friends at that point, and. Uh, yeah, we, we, I think one of the reasons why Cambridge Analytica never actually made it in, in Europe or the UK was because we were there. Uh, we shut this down in 2015, um, partly because we were all going to go in different, separate different directions, but also because uh, we realized the market just wasn't big enough. Um, in the UK or worldwide? Globally. Uh, you know, we would have been kind of restricted to the political ghetto, as we called it, and, and the real action was going to be you know, selling our services and, and our technology, licensing our technology to large corporates. But funnily enough, larger corporates have been doing this for the better part of 20, 30 years. And so there wasn't a huge need for our technology um, at that point. Uh, talking a little bit about uh, message base, you're saying that it was taking out a little bit of the existing algorithm or that was no? The existing algorithm was... Bought and rebought, bought, bought. Yeah, that was you. Yeah, that was okay. So, and Message Space was more of a advertising so company. Me Message Space actually started out because um, uh, myself and and the our two the two the three founders uh, we all had blogs and we were trying to monetize these blogs and so it started out as a very very low tech ad network um, and then we we combined our efforts with a whole bunch of other people we built a whole ad tech uh, stack and we kind of figured out that there was a, a real opportunity here to do uh, you know, targeted media buying and, and media planning for people. So what if we could use the same uh, technology that we'd built for ourselves, but what if we could license that? And what if we could let others, or even our competitors, use that same technology stack to help them uh, better target ads around the web to the right people? That's curious. Okay, let's take a step back. So you had a blog with with two more co-founders. Yep. And each of you wanted to monetize the blog, and you then decided to create a company. 
Yeah. So I had a blog, my, one of my other business, so mine was a, a, a small little blog, but, um, and it was focused on, on, uh, engaging the grassroots of one very specific political party in the UK. Uh, my other colleague, uh, my other co-founder had a blog that was, uh, uh, that still is, and, and actually is one of the most popular political blogs in, in the world. Um, and then a, a third co-founder also had, um, a, a similar blog. And, and so the three of us wanted to figure out how to, this is in 2005, effectively, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you, how do you make money off, of the web uh without you gotta you gotta take yourself back this is when you know tech crunch and and um a whole slew of you know, gawker valleywag were killing it in the u.s in terms of getting traffic numbers and getting traction and also attracting the attention of of advertisers and there wasn't a whole lot more going on in the UK. And so at this point, um, I'd spent a couple of years in the UK from 2005, 2007, um, uh, or 2006, actually, 2005, 2006. And I realized that you know, there, were, there were loads of things that were happening in the US that could be very easily replicated around the world. Um, and so that was one of those efforts. It was effectively a, a play on a company called Federated Media, mm-hmm. uh, which is run by John Battelle, who was one of the... You know, founding editors of of Wired, and and I think they went on to raise like a hundred million. Um, and we started out in 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 politics and and working with sites that were hugely influential, uh, but never quite realized how to commercially monetize. But were you were you going out there? Were you serving as a middleman between advertisers and the? political spectrum or writer or campaign or were you creating specifically the the ads themselves uh when we first started out we we were the uh we were the advertisers as well because we had uh all our friends were running political campaigns in some cases we were running our political you know political campaigns for our friends um uh, professionally of course and so in some cases we were actually the the initial advertisers but then we quickly realized that there were a whole bunch of um you know, not just political campaigns, but advocacy organizations, think tanks, pressure groups, grassroots organizations that also wanted to influence um, the influencers. And so what we had was effectively traffic that was ridiculously high quality. I mean, uh, you know, we had websites that were read by prime ministers and their advisors first thing in the morning because it was a source of, of information for them, uh, a vital and crucial source of information for them in terms of how, um, what, what the media was thinking of them at any point, what, what the grassroots were thinking of them at any point. And so all these things kind of fed our efforts to uh, uh, scale, you know, not just geographically, but also uh, in terms of influence. And, and we did look at moving into other markets. So we, we did think that we could replace... Uh, or not replace, but we could we could build and prove. Since we'd proven it in in politics, we did think about expanding into sport. Funnily enough, there's a lot of uh, similarities between uh, uh, politics and sport. Really? Yeah. Um, and we looked at a whole bunch of different markets, but ultimately, we we never really uh, did go into them. What's the what are the similarities? Can you go a little bit into that? Well, it's all driven by passion. So the the fervor that um, you know a, a and passion that a person holds for a political ideology tends to be the same way that they, you know, the, the way the brain thinks about uh, political politics 
tends to be the same way and replicate is replicated in the way that people think about their their favorite teams. Um, whether it's football, whether it's basketball, whether it's uh, well, you know, hockey or, or rugby, um, or or even cricket. When you're a fan and you have passion, it it runs deep. And so, and and one of the ways that you can influence people um, who are who are very passionate about something is is by talking to them about that thing that they're very passionate about. And so, you know, if if you if it just let's just let's extend the the metaphor a little bit more. If you're if you're um, trying to, you know, convey the, uh, a certain message about, let's say, sponsorship of a particular pod product and how it's working with uh, engaging a specific community, well, you could very easily convince uh, the people who really matter and people who really care by engaging with their grassroots. So it's it's a kind of a bottom-up approach. And, th- you know, the way to... Uh, get the chairman of a football club's attention is not by talking to him directly, but by talking to the fans of his football club and getting them to start chanting a few songs. It's the same thing for politics. It's the same thing for a bunch of different industries. The whole bottom-up approach, I mean, it's nothing new. This has been done since the 1960s. Um, if, you, if you ever watch Mad Men, there's one episode where Don Draper is effectively telling, uh, uh, you know, one of the brands that he's working for, that the best way to reach a congressman is is not by talking to the congressman directly, but by talking to the congressman's constituents. So making them say specific thing, since that either the president of the sports club or the congressman needs to hear from the people slash fans, therefore it's easier to... At the same time, I think it's it's a game of numbers. It's different if I talk with you or I get 17,000 people to talk with you. I think that's more of a game of numbers necessarily other than just representation, right? Sure, but it's not just 17,000 people because, I mean, I don't know 17,000 people, but if you manage to get, um, you know, 17,000 people that I I think are really important to to tell me something, I'm probably going to do what they tell me to do. Yeah, of course, not not necessarily 17,000 people at random, but if you don't know them or by an outside standard, you think that might be random, but at the same time, they all are united by one passion, be it a sports club, be it a political, even movies, I don't know. Exactly. And, and so this is effectively what, what, what that all these technologies get into, which is how do we, how do we find those 17,000 people? So, if, you know, fun fact, in, in the U.S., most elections are swung by, uh, you know, in, in most states, elections are swung by just about 20,000 people. Because um, if you get 20,000 people in in yeah, if you got twenty thousand people in in Wisconsin, for example, to um, change their vote in the twenty sixteen presidential election, um, that would have would have tipped the uh, balance in in a bunch of other uh, in that state in in terms of the electoral votes. But it would have also tipped the balance in a bunch of other states because people would have gone uh, and told their friends that they were going to vote in in a different way, and that would have had an impact in in four or five other states around Wisconsin. So. You don't affect. You don't really need to target hundreds of millions of people. You can actually do it by just engaging the influencers. Hmm. How do you influence the influentials? That that's effectively the tagline of of most of uh, you know most political campaigns in the world today. That that's effectively what they're trying to do. And nowadays, when you consider influencer influencers, I'm not saying necessarily the Instagram influencers, but when you say, "Let's go for the politics," well, why not? Why not? Influ- why not? Why not the Instagram influencers? Why not the YouTube influencers? They're still influencers, one way or another. I just, I just don't think they're being used in in 
in the way that, in in ways that they can be. But yeah. effectively, it's the exact same thing that they've been doing. It's the same thing that you know Avon did years ago, where they had uh, they they found you know the, the community leaders to go around and and sell cosmetics door to door. I'm not saying that, but for example, when you talk about influencers, let's say Instagram influencer, let's say model, a beautiful model. If I follow that model, let's say that that's me. If she gives me politics advice or anything else, I might say, well, stay in your lane because I'm not, I don't follow you because of A, B, and C. I follow you because X, Y, Z. This is my, my, my thought. When you, th- when you say about, when you think about politics advisors, we're, we're talking about, this is my knowledge from my very poor knowledge from the US or UK politic world in Portugal. It's a very niche world in terms of politics. Mm-hmm. Is it mostly the media, I assume, that you go after? Or do you go like after specific people that have a very high following in terms of blogs or you go, li- even though blog can be considered media, but do you go through, oh, okay, I kind of answered my question. <laughs> there we go. So here's here's a good difference. In 1996, um, if you did a poll of, or if you, if you looked at the people who ran um, most presidential or you know prime ministerial campaigns around the world, the, the top person, the, the chief campaign strategist, in 1996, that person would most likely have spent their lives um, working in the ad industry. They would have been ad men and women. They would have literally been Don Draper in the 60s and 70s, and then they kind of retired by moving into politics. Um, and their way of engaging many people was to buy a big billboard and, and put it outside um, as many you know uh, rest areas and, and uh, uh, hotspots as possible. Fast forward, um, you know, five years later, around 2000, and if you did the same poll again, or if you did the same survey, uh, but 80 to 90 percent of the of the the most senior person running those political campaigns would have been a um, a journalist. So what happened was there was a shift away from mass consumer advertising to talking to people using newspapers and talking to people by effectively engaging with the editor of a newspaper who would then uh, you know, have an effect on the journalists working for that newspaper. And so the, the, the messaging you know, that, that you wanted would actually appear on, on, in print on, on, you know, using newspapers via, via media. Um, well, that, at that point in 2000, you know, there, there were only newspapers or radio or, or uh, TV news. And then if you fast forward to today, well, actually, we're getting information from YouTube. We're getting information, you know, more, I think more teens now get news about what's going on from Facebook and Instagram than they do from newspapers um, or even, you know, their, their family members. Um, and so we're, we're dealing with such a huge paradigm shift that, it makes effort, it makes everything you know makes makes us makes us really have to rethink um, about rewriting this whole playbook. And do do you think that the paradigm shift is already ending, or do you think that the shift is still ongoing oh, until I, we go to one specific? Do, do you think it will ever stop to one place that we can get once again breathe in, breathe out, and say, okay, this is where we live? I hope not. I I hope we never reach that point where where um, it stagnates at some point. Where it stagnates. I I think we're just starting. To be fair. Going now to to West Digital really fast. Just you said that you found this founded this with three three friends. Mm-hmm. How was it to how is it to found a company with friends? Because uh, so what, one of them was already a, one of them was a business partner in a, in a previous venture, um, and so that was easy. 
Uh, we both hated each other. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, uh, no, that, I mean, that, that, was, that was easier because I kind of knew, uh, you know, what my co-founder was thinking at any point. And effectively, that, that's really what you need to know in a co-founder. You need, to, you need to be able to recognize that that person has, you know, strengths and, and can complement uh, you know, whatever weaknesses I had. And, and effectively, I already, we already knew that going in. So, so that was easy. We had two other uh, co-founders um, whom I'd never worked with before and, or one of whom I had worked with before. Funnily enough, I'd worked for him on a political campaign. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I served as one of his directors on, on uh, a campaign in 2011. Um, one of the most successful campaigns, dare, dare I say, uh, in British history. And, um, you know, it it was it was it was tough because with any in any um, in any startup environment in in any uh, you know, young company environment you're it's fraught with pressures pressures from from all sides you've got HR pressures you've got capital pressures you've got uh, biz dev pressures well let's just say you know we we may not have tackled. Uh, them all in the right order, but we, we did try and tackle them. And one of the differences, again, in 2011, 2012, we didn't have a lot of mentors around. We didn't have a lot of people who had built and scaled um, companies. There, there were quite, there were a few, um, but it's not like it is today where you have, you know, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people who have, built and scaled and sold their companies um, and are willing to share that information. Back then, if I, if I had to go, if I wanted to go approach someone and ask them for advice, um, most of them, I think nine out of 10 of them would, would ask me for shares and, and would say, well, I, I want, I want a board seat and I, I want, you know, 10% of your company to give you advice. Um, so, so even mentorship oh, absolutely. has changed a lot in terms of product. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that's one of the things that, that I, I tell founders, young founders today well, even older founders um, who are doing this for the first time or even the second time, you know, had you been in, in this position eight years ago, it would have been a completely different game. Um, you didn't have all these resources made available to you. You didn't have, it's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. You know, you've got access to resources from governments, from, from, uh, uh, from venture capitalists, from investors, from mentors, from other startups. You know, these days you're, you're getting startups uh, going under and and open sourcing all the technology stack that they'd built, all the learnings that they've that they've had. Yeah, you know, there's there's a, there's at least two medium posts for every startup that goes down. Um, you didn't have any of that in in 2011. Going in for a little bit of the doing a segue for the mentorship. Uh, you're an MD at the at TechStars, TechStars retail program with Metro. That's right. TechStars being the accelerator that's men mentor driven. When did you start becoming a mentor? Was it at the point that you, after the first the first few ventures, did you start mentoring? Was it, let's take a step back. Why did you start mentoring? Even, I assume you started mentoring before coming into Techstars. So, I, yeah, definitely. I, I began mentoring because I wanted to give back to the ecosystem. To um, so pay it forward kind of. To pay it forward. Um, you know, karma has, uh, plays a strong role in, in my, in shaping my, my thinking and in shaping where I have reached today. Um, and so I, I effectively wanted to pay it forward. I, I felt it was the right time, but also I actually, it, it, it wasn't a completely altruistic um, 
endeavor because I also wanted to learn um, what makes entrepreneurs successful. And I wanted to, to kind of learn you know, how, to, how to be a better entrepreneur myself, but also how to be a better uh, mentor and a listener. Uh, I, I thought those were those were things that I, I could definitely have improved on. And, and you know, I have to say I'm, I'm still improving. I'm still on that, on that journey. So you started mentoring for uh, in a paid forward kind of mentality. How did you come up to, to Techstars? Uh, I started mentoring actually, funny enough, by investing. So I started um, investing as an angel investor. Uh, angel investing being your own money, your my own, own cash. Um, in two thousand, in in the in the late in the late nineties, um, and uh, I didn't really have a strategy. I kind of just sprayed and played, really. Um, and I, one of the biggest mistakes I, I, you know, it took me about four or five years to figure this out, but I kept investing in ideas. Um, and it took me a while to realize that there's, there's a lot of things more important than just a great idea. I have to look at the team. I have to look at the, the market effectively. Um, most people tend to, tend to only look at, you know, either the team, they go, oh, this is a team of PhDs from Stanford and they have, you know, seven patents between them, um, and you know they've they've got a board of advisors that range from people at Sequoia all the way to A16Z, and therefore this company is going to succeed. And um, you know, yeah, sure, nine nine out of ten times they're actually going to be wrong. Um, you know, people tend to forget to look at the market. People tend to forget to look at um, how credible a, a team is um, and how hungry a team is. So there's lots of different factors that go into you know, and I, I think there's no one specific formula, but one of the one of the kind of early lessons that I wish I'd learned was stop looking at just the idea. Um, just because an idea resonates with me doesn't mean everyone, it's going to resonate with everyone else. As a personal investor, as an angel investor, have, did you ever have like a specific theme that you'd like that you'd wanted more to invest? Was it? Did you have like a, a specific philosophy? I'd like to invest in these kinds of startups. Or well, I started out investing in um, marketing tech because I thought I knew. Uh, marketing and, and ad tech because I knew I, I I thought I knew the industry. Turns out I didn't. Um, and then I actually branched out into deep tech pretty quickly, just because I I had a fascination for the space, but I also could actually understand uh, you know some of the more complex uh, uh, concepts that that some of these teams were working on. Um, and I also ha just happened to have a good network. Um, in, for people in out academia. there who don't know who what deep tech is, can you? That's a good question. Actually, it's 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 tech that's you know a little bit broader and and deeper. Um, like so it, it so it, it goes into uh, hardware. It goes into very specific uh, types of uh, you know more efficient hardware. And uh, the the best way to think about it, or the way the, the way I recommend people think about it, is um, deep tech is beyond just you know a a SaaS product. Uh, or a, a software product that can be used by a bunch of different businesses. Deep tech usually goes into, well, let's let's try and make a better silicon wafer um, in a, uh, a CPU chip within a computer. Let's try and uh, you know let's try and rethink a car. Let's try and rethink ways to harness energy uh, from the sun beyond you know the traditional ways of, of solar uh, and renewable uh, energy efforts. Okay. That was a horrible definition. Of no, 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 it wasn't. Don't worry. Uh, so going back to Techstars, how did you come up 
Tool. So I'd invested in a couple of companies that actually went through Techstars later. Um, I, I tended to invest at the very early seed stage. Um, and there was one company that I'd invested in that went through Techstars. In London? Uh, they actually went through Techstars LA. Um, and then I kind of knew some of the people in, in the Techstars sphere and I started talking to them a couple of years ago. This coincided with my desire to move out of politics properly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, sorry to interrupt. So as you were investing, you were, as you were working in politics was you were at the same time an entrepreneur, you were also investing, you were all doing these three things. I was doing a whole Most bunch of, them, of things at the same even time. Even though they coincide and interlace at the same time, they were completely different things. Absolutely. I mean, you know, for example, I, I really enjoyed investing because it gave me access to a, a completely different type of network of people. Um, I had actually gotten to meet a lot of really successful business people, um, you know, from my political career. Uh, but then... I, I then got to meet a bunch of very, uh, very different people, but also very successful, but very different people as an investor. And that gave me exposure to uh, angel networks, venture capitalists, um, you know, universities where some of these academic teams were, were beginning to think of ways to commercialize their, their research. Um, and so effectively, the, one, of the, one of the best ways I, I like to think of uh, being an investor is actually, it's just a really expensive networking exercise. Well, I mean, if you take, a, if you take, for example, I think it's Tim Ferriss that said he, he paid for his MBA by being an annual investor himself. Yep. Do you, do you agree with I'd, that? I'd vouch for that. Yep. <laughs> okay. So going back for tech stars, I mean, my, my dad doesn't stop my parents from telling me I should go get an MBA, but yeah, I, I, I definitely agree that uh, the, the stuff I've learned, um, outside of the classroom, uh, being an angel investor, you know, paying for it, definitely, definitely valuable. Now I can't, I don't have an MBA, so I can't compare it. Uh, I have a lot of respect for academic institutions, but I, I definitely think that I, I have at least closed the loop or at least accelerated my own development. Taking in, once again, the segue for acceleration. Uh, as an MD of Techstars Berlin Metro Retail, do you want to give a little bit more insight? So Metro basically the main sponsor of this specific program. You are the managing director. What was your focus? What's the, the, what's, what does the managing director of acceleration program, let's say specifically for Techstars do? So the managing director's role is to identify and source companies for the accelerator program. So ultimately I'm the one responsible for, for picking the companies that come into the accelerator and, and investing in them. Um, but beyond just investing in and accelerating in the companies, I'm the one that has to kind of make sure that you know the, the program delivers on what the needs and requirements are of, of the companies coming in and the founders. And so in most cases, it's about utilizing and, and my it's about utilizing my network of, of people and, and knowledge and skills to help the companies that come into the accelerator beyond the standard content that Techstars provides. And so, you know, for example, one of the companies um, in my cohort is, is currently fundraising and, you know, within the span of 48 hours, I was able to introduce them to more than 40 investors. And, and those were warm introductions because I've got that experience. As an entrepreneur, as an investor, I knew exactly what to say and, and, and who, to make the right, who to make the introductions to. Um, and so it's, it's things like that, but also it, it's, you know, day-to-day uh, challenges that, that startup founders and, and their teams face when they're in the accelerator, 
including, you know, ranging from everything from uh, uh, how to deal with a, a split between two co-founders to, you know, little things like when when's the right time to ever send an email to an investor. Um, and so it's about being available to answer those questions. Okay, let's take a little bit of a step back in terms of acceleration. Let's say we have someone who's working a full-time job at a consultancy business or other kind of business. Is the accelerator a good place for them now? What do sh- when should they apply for an acceleration? Are there different so accelerator it, programs? Yeah, so you know, no two accelerator programs are alike, just like you know, no two, um, uh, no two managing directors of any accelerator are alike. Uh, the program that I run is much more focused on slightly later stage companies. So, you know, we need to see traction. We need to see some solid confirmation of growth before we can bring someone into the accelerator. I, I run the whole the whole program uh, with a very simple premise that I don't want to waste anyone's time. And one of the nice things about the program that I run is, and actually one of the most... Um, one of the things that I'm most thankful for is I have the CEO of Metro, Olaf Koch, um, come into the program, you know, four or five times. And this is the CEO of a company with 150,000 people, 150,000 people spread across 35 countries with turnover more than, you know, 40 billion euros every year. And he's spending time with companies that I am investing in and accelerating. And so I have a very high bar in terms of making sure that if I do put any companies in the same room as I mean, so you know, he comes into the program four or five times, he's spending on average 30, 45, you know, 20, between 20 and 45 minutes mm-hmm. with the CEOs of, of these young companies on a one-to-one basis. Now, if I put someone in that room with him, I have to be damn sure that they're worth it. And it just in the same way, because I'm an investor in these companies, I have to make sure that he is the right person for them to meet at the same time. And so effectively, I, I run the whole, pro, I've, I've run, it, you know, like with most things in my life, I, I run it from the premise that I don't want to waste anyone's time. I need the startup to be of a certain and suitable caliber to be able to engage with Olaf. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't want to waste the startup's time. I don't want to waste Olaf's time. And by extension, I don't want to waste my time. I think that's a good premise, I, I, I believe. So someone for your program specifically it's better to be already with some proofs absolutely in the market it's, it's, it's a traction. it's an absolute requirement that that you know because you're it, dealing with metro specifically well it's not just not even if even if i were dealing with any other uh larger corporate now I, you know I, I know i know how corporates work and i can't put a team of really really inexperienced founders with no product in front of them because they won't actually be able to engage. They'll be able to give advice and they'll be able to give uh, their opinion, but they won't really be able to engage. What I want is for a company to be able to come into the program, go into the room with you know, someone from Metro who comes in from their perspective with, with the willingness to engage and do a deal. I, they come, if they're coming into the, if, they're, if, if the corporate is coming into the accelerator with the premise that they're going to do a deal with the startup that they're meeting, then I need the startup to be able to deliver on that premise as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I have nothing to say. I think that makes total sense once again. I mean, I, I think if you under-deliver on the quality of the startups or even the quality of the founders, it's, you're not, it's not balanced, the value that you're providing, even though as an investor, it's not balanced at one point. 
I think you're providing as much value and as much content as possible for them. At the same time that you're trying to prove for the investors themselves and the corporates that are backing the, the program, a good thing. I would hope so. I mean, again, you know, accelerators, I, I've been a huge cynic and, and a skeptic of acceleration programs and, and corporates in general, because most corporates as a, as a business structure or corporates as a sponsor of an acceleration program, both. I mean, okay. you know, in, in most cases, startups don't have very much time. Um, they're, they're ultimately racing against the clock for their own survival. Uh, founders are, are, you know, in the driving seat, but they're, They've got to deliver on, um, you know, they've got to deliver results in terms of business, in terms of growth, and in terms of, uh, well, a, a, as a return on investment. And corporates tend not to know how to work with smaller companies. Most most corporates in, in today's world, um, you know, despite having accelerator programs, are still very siloed up. They still don't have a lot of... Um, in-house expertise in terms of how to deal with uh, young companies that are extraordinary, extremely nimble and extraordinarily, uh, increasingly sophisticated. And so effectively, if, if a startup is coming in and, and you know, wants to engage with a corporate, they've got to be completely sure that they can deliver, but they've also got to be able to uh, have something that, that you know, the other party is able to work with. Just like with any other client, when it comes to these sorts of programs, uh, we've got to be extraordinarily, uh, unfortunately, stringent. I wish we could invest in hundreds of companies every year. I wish we didn't have to run programs just once a year because, you know, ultimately, as an investor, I'm 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 having to filter and restrict companies from coming in. I, I wish I didn't have to have those uh, requirements. But then again, you know, I I don't think I'd be able to run these programs uh, year round alone. It is an incredibly uh, uh, taxing and demanding job. Um, it's, it's not the easiest uh, uh, job to have. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's go into a little bit of a lightning round because I know that your time is... Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so, you know what's the, the general idea of a lightning round? I'll ask you one question, one minute to answer. Okay. Okay. So, if you started today from scratch, out of the university, where would you focus? Um, so, okay. So if I started, if I were just coming out of university and I had, let's, let's assume, you know, um, I still had the background in, in math, but a, a, uh, penchant for public affairs, world affairs and, and politics in general. Uh, I would want to tackle one of the, one of the bigger problems, uh, facing humanity. And that's primarily, uh, the migration crisis. I'd I'd want to find ways of of tackling that. Okay. Uh, Using technology, of course. God knows how I do that, but that that would probably be you know one of one of the first things I want to work on. One day, who knows? Who knows? Um, are you a good? Are you a book giver usually? No. Okay. What's the f- the book? I, I switched to um I switched to Kindles. Are you uh, a Kindle giver? I, well, that's the problem. It, it, Kindles aren't really easy to gift. You have to you have to like actually buy another copy. Of a person, it's 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 one of the most annoying things about eBooks. I find I can't just email you a copy. And then, if you're not a big giver uh, in terms of books, of course, what's the book that you've read that you think right now that's impacted you the most? Uh, over the last few months, I've I've been mostly been reading. Um, uh, 
nonfiction about North Korea. So uh, I honestly can't think of anything right now that, that um, immediately comes to mind. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for any book that, um, you know, just name, name a Ted talk uh, giver and, and, you know, and if they have a Nobel prize uh, attached um, and then they write a book, I, I probably will, will read one of those books. But um, I think Daniel Kahneman's uh, thinking fast and slow is probably the, the most recent one. I really like that a lot. Uh, I read it when I was in Paris. I basically sifted through half of it while flying from Paris to Lisbon because I was so fascinated by the, yeah. the general idea of what the hell was happening there. Yeah. I mean, these were the three questions. I don't want to take more of your time. Thank you so much for being here on the Pioneers Show. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. And I would like to acknowledge a little bit because I think that you're an extraordinary person. And I would really, really like to thank you and appreciate that the time and effort that you put in this. And of course, at the same time, I think that I could talk for anyone else that has worked with you and never worked with you directly, but it's really a pleasure to listen to you talk. You're a very knowledgeable person and with a very good narrative. And I really like that a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's very, very, very much appreciated. Thank you so much for plugging into this episode. I truly hope you love this conversation as much as I did. Jack is an incredible person and I really enjoy every conversation that I have with him, however short or long it may be. Any information that you might have missed will probably be linked up in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing to make sure that this podcast grows and we can get more people and help everyone be the pioneers of their own lives and careers. If you enjoyed this conversation, please let me know, reaching out on social media as well. A big thank you to Jack Singh and Thibaut Flandlin, aka DJ Raudia. Check it on the show notes. Everything will be there for the new music for the Pioneers show. Once again, it was really, really great pleasure having you over there. Have a great time. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>